0: Our scripture reading for today is from 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for what for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is God's word. Thanks Thanks be be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, We're thankful for the ways that it speaks to everything, um, that it speaks to the good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly. And so I pray that you would help us to hear from your word this morning, uh, that it would speak specifically to our circumstances, our uh, city, our culture, Um, and that it would transform our church. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Thanks to Lila for taking one for the team and reading that vice list. Um, That's what we tend to do anytime the word orgies come up. We have a 13-year-old come up. That's what we try to do. Um, She lives in San Francisco. She's totally cool with (laughs) it. One of the most memorable podcast stories I have ever heard is an episode of This American Life from 10 years ago, so you know it's memorable because I remember it from 10 years, uh, called Doppelgangers, and it's about a rumor that fried calamari, uh, especially calamari that's bought for cheap um, at a chain restaurant somewhere, is not actually fried squid, but a certain unsavory pig part. Anybody heard this episode before or heard this theory? is really well done, Um, and the theory is that American pork plants, seeking to capitalize on every single part of the pig, uh, ship pork rectum overseas, where it is then cleaned up, cut into cylinders, and battered before getting sent back to America as imitation calamari. Ben Calhoun, the journalist, writes, imagine this. In restaurants everywhere, right this second, people are squeezing lemon wedges over crispy golden rings, dipping the rings into marinara sauce, and they're eating hog rectum. (laughs) Now they're chewing, satisfied, and deeply clueless. Uh, In the end, so it's this long episode, it's really funny, I'll I'll send a link to it on Slack, in the end, though, to be fair, the episode was inconclusive. It's sort of all, they couldn't confirm it, but they did do a taste test, and he had a colleague who just loved calamari and just couldn't believe He said, so absolutely could tell the difference. He could not tell the difference. He believed that the pork bun, which is the uh, industry terminology for it, he thought that was the calamari, and he was mortified that he chose the wrong one. Um, a closing line um, from Mr. Calhoun, just to repeat one last time, I have no proof that anyone, anywhere, has ever tried to pass off pork bung as calamari in a restaurant. All I know is, if you wanted to do it, it would be easy. <laughs> Needless to say, since January 2013, Maggie and I will no longer eat fried calamari from anywhere unless it's a very reputable place and we see the tentacles. Like, it's like we, you know, when you, cause there's difference. Like you can order calamari and it's just rings, right? We only get calamari when there are some like other parts of the squid that are evident. Um, no more rings-only calamari dishes, can't do it, won't do it. And now maybe I've ruined calamari for you too. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, there are some revelations, some experiences, which you cannot unsee, which you cannot unlearn. I can't, like, even though now it's it's probably not true, I can't, like, unexperience that story uh, whenever I'm out and about. And this is sort of the way Peter talks about abstaining from sin in 1 Peter 4, um, where because of Christ, because of the revelation of Christ, uh, you can't unlearn it. You can't go back. You can't see things differently. I love that phrase, the time that has passed suffices. Um, He doesn't really shame them. He doesn't even really shame the Gentiles. He just says, you know what? We're done with that, right? Jesus died and rose again. We're done with it. Leave it behind. Uh, Similarly, Paul says in Acts 17 to pagan worshipers in Athens, uh, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. There was a time when you didn't know this, but now you know. And now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, you used to think that that stuff was fried calamari, the pleasures of life, like it was sort of like a very fancy hors d'oeuvre, right? But now you know. Like it's not calamari, it's pork rectum. And that is gross. It doesn't matter what it tastes like. It doesn't matter that other people are doing. It matters what it is. You can't unsee that, you can't unhear that, or at least you shouldn't. And so what does Peter call out specifically? We, we have to address the list, right? So living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And we read this in light of our own experience and context and culture and think, surely this list applies to a very small segment of the church, uh, of the population, um, but so common were these practices in Roman society that Christian abstention surprised people and even resulted in ridicule. So you know it wasn't like a, a, a fringe thing. If people were shocked, First uh, Peter 4.4, 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. And that's because for the Roman citizen, especially the male citizen, sexuality was mostly unregulated. Uh, Roman wives were generally held to perfect chastity, and so they were not free in any way whatsoever, Um, but their husbands, on the other hand, were largely free and could do whatever they want. Men, husbands included, were allowed considerably more freedom to have sex with other women, uh, particularly women not deemed to possess honor. So they weren't supposed to have an affair with another wife uh, because she was possessed, She was owned by her husband, but they could have sex with prostitutes, courtesans, slaves, particularly male slaves, um, was a very, very common practice. Young boys um, were often used and abused in Roman society. And so in this context, um, Christianity was strikingly egalitarian. Uh, strikingly committed to equality, but not in the permissive way of today, which might say that whatever a man can do, a woman should be able to do. Like, let's just, like, relax the standards for every way. On the contrary, instead, it held men to the same high standard that everyone else was held to, right? Complete marital chastity. And so this list of vices might feel extreme to us, but it wasn't extreme at the time. It was something that pastorally Peter felt obligated to name and speak, like abstain from this. Even though you might be scolded, even though your whole city thinks it's completely okay, you should not do this. I uh, casually mentioned to my mother-in-law yesterday that today's sermon would be about orgies, and she thought I was joking. Um, But the fact is that these activities and behaviors were widely available culturally acceptable and even commended. It was a way to sort of protect the man from adultery that mattered. Like we didn't want him to do something that mattered and violate his family and the cultural order and so we're gonna let him do all these other things instead. Um, That is mercifully not true today um, in such a, especially in the power dynamic sense. In my experience as a pastor, like orgies haven't come up much. Um, But um, I will say that, like, sex addiction is very real in the church that does come up. Uh, Prostitution, hookups, pornography use, those do happen in our city and within the church. Um, And so, frankly, um, it would be irresponsible and unloving. to let this moment pass because it doesn't come up in scripture, but we, we preach all of God's word. And so we want to say, and I was just sort of initially, my perspective was like, okay, well, I'll just give the context, but then say like, that's not important to us. But like, man, we really should pause and think about these things um, given the time and place that we live. Um, this list is only becoming more and more relevant um, to us. Uh, The farther our community, the farther our city and culture gets from Judeo-Christian ethics, the more pertinent um, this list gets. Um, We're not at the point yet where we would be maligned for refusing to participate, but everything in this list truly is available in this city. Um, It's acceptable and even approved of in certain contexts, especially the younger you are. Um, The older you are, the more this kind of behavior would be frowned upon as irresponsible, especially if you are married with kids. Um, But for younger people, in certain contexts, there is a real sense that you could be maligned to participate in this. Um, There was a um, pair of very frightening books Peggy Orenstein published, um, a journalist. She had one called Girls and Sex and one on Boys and Sex. And she's a sociologist that looks into the cultural beliefs and experiences around sex among American teenagers. And it is it is very shocking and very sad, the things that um, teenagers and high schoolers are learning um, about sex, um, invited to, uncomfortable with, but feel obligated to sort of pursue. Um, 1 Peter 4.3 is really like completely relevant to my kids without needing update. Like that whole list, like all of it, like doesn't need any update whatsoever. It relates to Shepard as he like is in middle school and enters in high school. Um, and maybe it's relevant for you too. And so I, we wanna pause uh, and name that maybe you're here and you need encouragement. We all need encouragement to hold fast to Christ in a sensual culture. Uh, Maybe your social circles at school and work are marked by drunkenness. Um, That's what it takes to sort of be involved uh, with people Um, on your own. Maybe it is hard to stay away from pornography, from hookups, from substance abuse. Those things are easily available to all of us. And it feels like obedience to Christ, and I think this is key, so for so much of it, we can look at the act itself, um, and we could talk about that, but this text is so much about how obedience to Christ means abandonment by friends and loneliness, that saying no to these things actually, like, invites loneliness for you, invites estrangement, always being dissatisfied. And so, If that is you in this moment, first, I am so sorry. Loneliness is so hard. It's so difficult. And so may you find friendship and meaning here at Citizens. A full-orbed life. May this be a church that is marked by satisfying relationships without the need for drunkenness and illicit sex. Like, you don't have to do that because your life is full and rich here. May you experience celebration and joy and affection in life. So saying no to those things isn't saying no to joy. It's not saying no to celebration. Um, It is saying yes to those things, greater joy, greater affection, responsible drinking, good cocktails. Like those things can be had among our community. Honoring relationships between men and women so that you never feel left out. And when we're tempted... Remember what it really is that's tempting you. Like, don't forget that's the calamari example. Like, don't forget what it is beneath the glamour and excitement. It is, frankly, abuse that's tempting you. That's what pornography is. That's what hookups are. That's what drunken parties all are. They all involve both our own abuse and our complicity in the abuse of others. And so we need to remember that. It's not enough that it's consensual. How we read about Rome's tolerance of sexual abuse by men and are tempted to think that San Francisco is better because it's supposedly all consensual. And the Me Too movement has really exposed that that's really not necessarily the case. It's like really hard, like what is consent? Um, And so, even consent is like a really sticky, um, difficult concept. Um, Helen Lewis writes for The Atlantic, uh, what the Bible has taught for millennia, and it says, man, our enlightened values, less stigma regarding unwed mothers, the acceptance of homosexuality, greater economic freedom for women, the availability of contraception, the embrace of consent culture, which she would all celebrate, Helen Lewis would celebrate all those things but they haven't translated into anything like a paradise of guilt-free fun. Um, Christine Emba wrote a book called Redeeming Sex, I think is the name, but then she did an op-ed in the Washington Post a, a few months ago, and it was entitled, Consent is Not Enough, We Need a New Sexual Ethic. And she writes, the outcome of the sexual revolution is a world in which young people are both liberated and miserable. While college scandals and the Me Too movement may have cemented a baseline rule for how to get into bed with someone without crossing legal lines, that hasn't made the experience of dating and finding a partner simple or satisfying. Instead, the experience is often sad, unsettling, even traumatic. Sad, unsettling, even traumatic. And so when you look at this list, that's the thing that I felt like was so distinct from this list of vices versus before, where it's like, is the, that these were people who are all like agreeing to join. There was like complete consent. No one's being forced into these things. And yet it's still har- harmful. It's still traumatic. And that's what we see. If we just investigate and talk with people, which is these two authors do, the experience is often sad, unsettling, traumatic. Remember, We should remember for ourselves and for our friends that it is abuse that is tempting us. It is emptiness that is tempting us. Worse than emptiness, it's a black hole that only takes and never gives. It will leave you depleted. And so remember the words of Peter in chapter four. The time that passed suffices for doing that. Like you you have done it, Paul in Romans says, Man, you did that before and it only produced death in your life. Why would you go back to it? Don't go back to that. The time that passed is suffices for that. Don't go backwards. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Remember, God is watching, we will all give an account for how we steward our own bodies and how we treat others with them. Any fleeting pleasure today isn't worth the cost we'll pay. It's not worth it now, and it's not worth it later. The sermon really is in two parts, and the, the first part is this. What behavior, what practice, what habit, though allowed and permitted, excused, even approved of, by the city, by our culture, by our communities, what practice needs to be left in the past? Where you just need to say, you know what, the time is done for that. Christ died and rose again, and so I'm not gonna do that anymore. What do we need to move on from as we follow Christ? Whether it be in that list, which is very pertinent um, to all of us in the city, um, those are going to be strong temptations for anyone who lives here. Like you can't move through the city and not see evidence that those things are going on. Um, but anything else too, uh, regarding your money, regarding your uh, career, all of these other lawless idolatries that tempt us, that need to be left behind. <clears throat> so that's sort of the first uh, half of the sermon, first implication. The second half of the sermon asks how. How? Because it's hard to abstain. It's hard to be the only one who sort of bows out. It does um, result in malignment. And so how do we leave it behind? How do we move on as a community? How can we keep ourselves from sins like these and others when we live in a culture that doesn't call it sin, that maybe even calls it good and celebrates it? How do we leave it behind and keep leaving it behind? Um, if you're like me, <clears throat> your seriousness around sins like this, around sexual temptation, alcohol abuse, all those sorts of things, being self-controlled in these ways, it ebbs and flows, right? And so you might uh, receive conviction of sin this morning and be like, man, you're right. You see the word, it impacts you, and so you you make concrete changes. Um, but then, all of a sudden, in a week, a month, a year, right, you find yourself like right back in this log. And so like, how do we decide to abstain now and then continue um, to avoid it? Um, Is there a way to get ahead of those uh, failures? And so listen again to how the passage begins. 1 Peter 4, 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Ironically, according to 1 Peter, our resolve against sin is strengthened through suffering. It's strengthened through Christian suffering. We might think that Christian suffering would make us more vulnerable to temptation. Would that make sense, right? That like the suffering and struggle would weaken our resolve, but 1 Peter says that Christian suffering lessens temptation. It makes it, it gives less of a draw to me. I'm reminded of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, right? After 40 days of fasting, Satan approaches him. And we read that story and assume that Jesus was especially weak after 40 days of fasting. I think that's probably what Satan was thinking. Now's my chance. He's at his weakest. But I wonder if he was not much stronger on day 40 than he was day one. Because he had spent 40 days not eating, but feasting on God's word in his presence. And so isn't that one of the lessons from Jesus' temptation? That fasting leads to strength. That suffering in the flesh leads to strength. And Peter doesn't just go to Jesus' suffering in the wilderness, but ultimately to his suffering on the cross, right? Everything in First Peter is predicated on Jesus' suffering at the cross because as Rob preached last week, his suffering led to his vindication, And so it totally reworked Peter's understanding of suffering. He began to see it everywhere, but see it in a new light. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And now, verse 22, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This reality changes everything for the Apostle Peter. And that's what he says in verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For Peter, Jesus is both the motivation and the model for both suffering and sinlessness. That is how we abstain from sin, by remembering Christ and following Christ. That's why we gather every week for worship, to see again, to hear again, to taste again in communion the gospel of Christ and to recount once more how his shame was turned into glory, how his glory became ours by grace through faith. Remember how Peter in 2.20 calls suffering for good a gracious thing, literally a gift from God. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And how can Peter say that? Who in their right mind thinks that suffering is a gift? But Peter thinks so because he witnessed the suffering of Christ. And he saw the outcome, how the worst event in history became the best event. He saw how Jesus disarmed suffering and death, not only removing God's judgment, but then rearming it. It's like he pulled out one bullet and then put a life-giving bullet back in so that suffering and death with God's, brings God's blessing, new life. We can suffer with purpose, and our suffering will purify us. On this point, I love Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, after the great hall of faith, and particularly the end of Hebrews 11, talks a great deal about Christian suffering. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... That's what he did. He despised the shame. He shamed it. And that's what Peter is consistently telling us to do. When we are shamed, we shame the shame. We turn it around. Are people shaming you for following Christ, for shaping your life after his, for choosing him over them, for choosing holiness over sin? Do not be ashamed. Instead, shame the shame. Turn it back on itself. Here in 1 Peter 4, the apostle tells us to arm ourselves with the same kind of thinking so that we can continue to resist temptation and hold fast to Christ. And so ask yourself, how is God calling you this morning to reinterpret your suffering in in light of the cross? Especially the suffering you experience as a result of following Jesus. So that your suffering doesn't weaken your resolve, but strengthens it. As you struggle against sin, what is some suffering that would strengthen you? Is there some suffering that you should choose, like fasting, to strengthen your resolve against sin? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm not really suffering for following Jesus. I know that's been a challenge for a lot of us as we've read First Peter. Um, it feels inappropriate to apply their harder situation to ours. Um, in contemporary America, and I don't think that's exactly true. I would push back on that some. I think there are definitely ways that you, as a Christian are suffering for doing good, which you don't see. And it's really important um, for you to see it and name it because that's how we're strengthened against temptation. And so if I think my hardship is just hardship and just sort of generic like problem of evil, um, I don't know like, why my life is so hard, and I'm not tying it to Christ, it's gonna wear me down. And that is going to lead me to be more tempted to lust, to alcohol abuse, all those sorts of things, like because I'm just struggling with the like nihilism of life. But if I'm able to connect my suffering to following Christ, it will dignify my suffering. It will point me to God and embolden my obedience. And so is there suffering that you need to leverage for obedience, that you need to reinterpret and say, no, I am choosing this in following Christ. But I also believe that there is some suffering that our church, that us individually and collectively, is likely leaving on the table. Suffering that is available to us if we'll take it. And I use that language intentionally because for Peter, suffering, if it's God's will, is a blessing. It's a gift. And so if it's available, we should grab it, right? If it will help me in the fight against sin, like I should take it. And so if in fact we're not suffering for following Christ, we should stop and consider whether we're missing out. Maybe some of our self-protection is actually counterproductive. It actually makes life harder. We, I flourish less. It makes me more vulnerable to temptation and sin, so that I'm avoiding crosses, but not realizing that in doing so, I'm avoiding resurrection too. So how do we know if there's resurrection life we're leaving on the table? How do we know if there's suffering available that would be a blessing? And to answer that, I want you to ask yourself, where do you feel shame for following Jesus today? Because our sense of shame will help us identify the potential for suffering. Isn't that the logic of Hebrews 12 too? Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. So in order for Jesus to endure the cross, he had to defeat shame first. He had to get over it first. He had to shame shame. And we too, in order to be publicly obedient, must first identify shame and shame it expose it for what it is. And how do you identify shame? Shame is a nakedness which wants to be covered. It's a nakedness which wants to be covered. It's an exposure to ridicule. And so if you're trying to decide where you feel, where you might feel ashamed of Jesus, just ask yourself, when am I tempted to run for cover? Like what kinds of conversations, what kinds of relationships What kinds of dynamics where I change the subjects, where I explain away or diminish behaviors I engage to avoid exposure so that people don't know I'm a Christian or they definitely know that I'm not one of those kinds of Christians, where I put a lot of energy into that? Are there conversations which we avoid, people in settings which we avoid? Even in here, In the church, with brothers and sisters, what are areas of faith and life that you struggle with silently because of shame? Doubts that you hold secret. Sin which you hold secret. And you might say, well, that's not me being ashamed of Jesus. I'm being ashamed of myself, right? I'm experiencing my own shame. But in the gospel, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, is not... Is me being ashamed of myself simply be, me being ashamed of my need for Jesus? Is that why I'm silent about these struggles? It's because I don't want to open myself to the opportunity to glorify Christ. Confession of sin is a way to shame shame, 100%. You bring it to the light, and you shame it because you put it on Jesus. Living honestly before others, acknowledging weakness, it's a way to shame, shame. Finding your righteousness in Christ alone and not in your own performance is a way to shame, shame. And so ask yourself where have I silenced myself because of shame? So that in anticipation of suffering, I have chosen to keep quiet. I know in that circumstance, I often tell myself, man, I just don't want to be awkward. Um, I don't wanna make someone else awkward. And a few years ago, I tried to cut back on my use of the word awkward, I just found that it was justifying a lot of behavior. It was the thing that I sort of pointed to, it was like, ah, oh, you know, that's really awkward, I don't wanna be awkward, I don't wanna make them awkward. And I cut back on my use of the word because I was convicted, realizing that awkwardness is not really a category in scripture. Like when I talk about awkwardness and then I go to scripture for help, like there's no, it's like, where is it? You know, like, it feels like a really, like, modern, like, youthful, like, image conscience word. Um, And and what I realized um, is that awkwardness is really a modern euphemism for shame. That's what it is, right? It's a shame word. When I don't want to be awkward or to make someone awkward, what I'm saying is I don't want to feel shame and I don't want to make someone else feel shame. But if I use the word shame, the Bible says much about that. And so I can go. It's a fine thing to not want to shame someone. It's a fine thing to not want to be ashamed. But what is Scripture's prescription for shame? It does not prescribe silence to address shame. Thou actually feeds shame, right? Darkness feeds it. And so silence is not the prescription. Holding it in does not help my faith in Christ. Living dishonestly does not address my awkwardness. Scripture does not prescribe silence as the answer to shame. It prescribes Jesus for it. It prescribes the cross. Where Jesus, it's hard to imagine... The experience, the shameful experience of Jesus on the cross. He literally hung naked, beaten, mocked, exposed. And it led to abundant life for all who believe in him. It shamed the shame to where we glory in the cross, we wear necklaces with the cross, we tattoo it on our bodies. Silence feeds shame. The cross kills it by bringing it out to the light. And so, what do we do with our shame? What do we do with our awkwardness, with our fear of exposure? We expose it. We shame it by confessing it. We turn the tables and embrace weakness. We step into the light. We crucify it. We shame the shame so we can endure the cross and be free. That's what we see in the apostles, in the book of Acts, and 1 Peter. There's just a freedom in the witness of the apostles, where I'm sure, and lots of books have been written about the strategy of church growth in the book of Acts, but it doesn't look very strategic. It just looks like they are being themselves, full of the Spirit, right? They're just Spirit-filled and spontaneous, sharing Christ with whoever's around them. Peter was just himself, and he's asking the early church to be themselves, which is to be followers of Christ, children of God out in the ocean, open. Not obnoxious, not evil, gentle and kind and winsome and good, but don't be silent. That is not the answer to our shame. That is not the answer to our awkwardness. And so what shame in your life do you need to be rid of? What shame in your life do you need to reinterpret in the light, in light of the cross so that you can shame it Endure your cross and find resurrection life on the other side. What suffering, what blessing in the form of suffering, what gift from God are you leaving on the table? To where you will be strengthened in your obedience by being more vulnerable, more open, more out with your faith? Do you need to confess sin and hear? That is a great boon. I have I was somebody who suffered silently addicted. I've been addicted to lots of things. Um, I've been addicted to pornography. I've been addicted to alcohol. All kinds of things. It does not work to fight it in the dark. It's, it doesn't work. And there was an immediate strength and boon to when I shared it with other people. It the light really does kill shame. And so is there sin that you need to confess in here and and not feel shame for it because of the cross? You don't have to feel ashamed. And so I can say that from here and, and be totally fine because Jesus has forgiven me of my sins. He has healed me. And so I can say that to here, I can say that to any of those people out there, and be totally open about it. And it leads to life. It leads to a strength of resolve against sin. Not a perfect one, one that ebbs and flows, but certainly more possible than me by myself for years suffering the condemnation of sin and Satan you need to acknowledge weakness? Do you need to ask for help? Who do you need to share your faith with? What co- coworker? What boss? What neighbor? What family member? Where you've sort of tried to avoid the awkwardness, but you need to just jump into the awkwardness of it. Maybe out of the blue, apologize and say, you know, I've been hiding something from you. I am a Christian, and I don't know why I've been hiding in it, but I love Jesus, Jesus loves you, I love you, and salvation is found in him. That would be super awkward to do out of the blue, but maybe that is what the Lord's inviting you to. It's it's weird, but it's good weird. It's sanctifying weird. And with the Spirit, your weirdness might save your friend. May we be an awkward church. May this be an awkward place, a place that is open, a place that is kind but vulnerable, honest, that is full of light. May we be awkward because of how free we are in Christ, how much we are ourselves, and not pretending. Awkward because we love Jesus more than anything else, and we love each other like family, and we love this city like future family. Awkward because we've moved on from old ways of living and being because we're different. Awkward because we can't unsee, unhear, unlearn the gospel. We just can't go backwards. That Jesus died and he rose again and he's alive today and nothing else matters. Let's pray.